everybody. This is Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president and also the Socialist Party candidate in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and advocate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. So uh, we were going to have Claire Cohen on today. She actually has to take uh, test to, you know, get her medical license uh, renewed or updated. Um, so she's going to be on on December 17th, and we'll talk more about the health care issue. But, you know, it's an issue every week. I mean, this week it it was around this uh, contract for the rail workers, and all they wanted was paid sick leave. Uh, they have an, horrendous schedules, and they wanted, you know, paid sick and family leave. They asked for 15 days, um, and the president and Congress, instead of shoving the contract down their throat, should have at least amended it so it had these uh, 15 days of paid sick leave. Instead, the House passed a basically a performative bill for show, so the liberals could you know say, well, they voted for sick days. It was only seven sick days, um, and then of course the Senate defeated it like everybody knew they would. And Biden signed a bill. And, uh, you know, this just really makes me angry. We're like the last country in the world without paid sick leave. And we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's flu season, RSV is going around. And they're basically forcing people to go to work sick uh, who, you know, can't afford to take the time off or to get in disciplinary trouble if they do. So this is ridiculous. And, you know, being a Teamster and UPS, the last contract we had was shoved down our throat when after like the majority of rail workers, majority of Teamsters voted that contract down. But there was a clause in the Constitution that we didn't pass it by or voted down by two thirds. Jimmy Hoffa Jr. in, in the leadership of the Teamsters could have shoved that uh, could shove that contract down our throats. And they did. And it was a terrible contract. I mean, I won't go into all the details, but probably the most glaring was. They set up a new category of drivers who are paid much less than the senior drivers. It's basically a two-tier system. So as the seniors retire out, the new workers work at a lower level. Um, and there's just a whole lot of problems with that contract. And it'll be a big issue this coming year because next July 31st, that contract is uh, is over. So Teamsters are getting ready. And they're working right now and on negotiating, and it, it might lead to a strike. And there's no federal law that can prevent the teachers from striking like there is uh, in this law that gives the Congress the right to impose a contract and, you know, prohibit a strike, which is where we're at right now. And, you know, to make this worse, back in 2015, Obama passed or wrote an executive order giving all employees of federal contractors seven days paid sick and family leave with a carve out for rail workers. So they didn't get it. And all the railroads have lots of federal contracts. So they picked on the rail workers. And, you know, now that this contract has been imposed, people are demanding that Biden uh, amend or pass a new executive order uh, to give those seven sick days to rail workers like other uh, employees of federal contractors. Um, Well, Biden could do that, but... uh, and that's the demand now, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, and this is so disgusting because the railroad companies are the most profitable 
industrial sector or any sector in the economy. They made over $80 billion in profits last year. And the benefits they're paying the workers was $336 million. So they could easily have covered paid sick days. Um, and profits have been going up for decades. They were at a rate of 15%, which is really good, back in 2001. Last year, they were 41%. And meanwhile, the spending on workers' wages and benefits was 34% of all revenues for the railroads in 2001. And it's down to 20% in 2021. So they're taking it out of the workers' hides and they're spending it on dividends and stock buybacks, which were less than a billion dollars a year in 2001 and were $18 billion last year. So these profits from super exploitation of these rail workers uh, is going into the hands of the rich. And so, you know, why did the Democrats capitulate? Well, they're a capitalist party. They say so. Nancy Pelosi told us. The railroad company spent 5 to $10 million on campaign donations each election cycle in recent cycles. Um, about two-thirds the Republicans, but one-third the Democrats. They spent $13 million on lobbying this year. So, you know, the Democrats, they'll pander to any capitalists who might give them money, even if they're giving more money to the Republicans. I think that's what we see going on here. Um, now there's a progressive cross-union, cross-craft rail workers reform caucus called Railroad, Railroad Workers United. And, uh, you know, they've been calling in the course of this for public ownership of the railroads. So they're operating in the interest of the workers and the public, universal paid and family sick leave, labor law reforms, including passing the PRO Act and increasing National Labor Relations Board funding. PRO stands for protecting the right to organize, would allow for things like card check union recognition, where when you get a majority of people to sign the card, uh, you're a bargaining unit that the employer has to deal with. And then uh, after Biden shoved this down our, their throats, uh, they called for, you know, reassessing their political options and looking into an independent workers party. So these are people we should be working with. And you know, now they're stuck with this contract and uh, I don't expect wildcat strikes. That would really cause disciplinary problems, fines to the unions. I mean, they're really over a barrel now. Thanks to the Democrats, you know, who call themselves the, the, the pro-labor party and they just showed themselves that they're not or showed us all that they're not. And uh, another union came out this week uh, also calling for uh, universal paid sick leave. Uh, they had an appeal yesterday calling for stronger public and occupational health and safety standards in light of the growing COVID flu and RSV uh, infections and overwhelming the hospital systems we're seeing right now. And they in particular condemned the quote unquote immunity deficit concept that's circulating, including from a CDC spokesperson uh, last week that says because Children were protected during the COVID period. They have an immunity deficit. Therefore, we need to let them get infected with RSV. That's unscientific. There's no such thing as an immunity deficit. Your immune system works all the time. And it's dangerous because particularly for children, RSV can be life-threatening or it can kill them. And uh, so, you know, the, 
and then you had a statement, National Nurses United had a statement out, you know, showing why, explaining why this immunity deficit concept is unscientific and dangerous. And, uh, you know, the, like the railroad, railroad workers called for universal sick and paid family leave, like almost every other country in the world, you know, except a few outliers like Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea, and the United States. I mean, this is so disgusting. It just pisses me off because people get sick and die. Uh, they go to work and spread, you know, illnesses to other people because we won't provide paid sick leave. It's 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 just unbelievable. So speaking of uh, health issues also, you know, we've, we've all seen these uh, protests in China over the COVID lockdowns and the you know, very draconian kind of restrictions people are under. And it's, I think it's important to understand that these people are calling for freedom. A lot of them are calling for democracy. Uh, this is not like the right-wing anti-vax demos in the West. Nobody's saying don't vaccinate. Uh, the vaccines are, you know, going to kill us or whatever the anti-vax people are saying. Uh, it's really about uh, resisting the pervasive surveillance that has been enhanced and intensified with the zero COVID lockdowns and contact tracing. And there are a couple of articles, I'm not gonna say a whole lot more about that, but um, I'm gonna put them in the uh, chat. One is by Promise Lee, it's entitled, Socialists Should Support the Popular Resistance in China. And it, it appeared in one of the DSA publications, Socialist Call. And I know Promise, he's an exiled Hong Konger uh, you know, who's fighting for socialism here and in China. Um, and he has a good explanation of, you know, why these are not like the right-wing anti-vax demos here and also why we should support them and how we can. And then the other article is by Jonathan Neal, who's a socialist climate activist in the UK. It was in The Ecologist. It's entitled China, COVID, and Climate. And uh, I'll also mention his book, Fight the Fire, uh, which came out last year. It's one of the best on the climate crisis from an eco-socialist perspective that I've seen. Um, and, you know, if you read Neil's article at the end, he has an interesting discussion about how the global left is realigning itself between those forces that are moving left toward a democratic internationalism that supports working class and pro-democracy movements resisting state capitalist dictatorships like Russia, China, Syria, Iran, and an authoritarian left that's moving right and supporting these dictatorships is somehow anti-imperialist and progressive. So I, it, I you know, urge you to read that and, and think about what he says. Um, and he particularly with respect to the climate movement, a lot of climate activists who are generally progressive, if not socialists, um, don't want to talk about the lack of democracy in China because they have hope that it's a progressive dictatorship that's going to do what needs to be done to deal with the climate crisis. Uh, unlike, quote unquote, messy democracies where, you know, it's a struggle. But at least in messy democracies, we can fight for what we want. Whereas in China, you know, the, the line comes from the top down. And, uh, you know, that view is anything but a, you know, the, the people that want to rely on these progressive dictatorships is anything but a class analysis because the Chinese capitalists have an interest in the massive fossil fuel projects that they still do, even if they're 
building out the biggest solar panel industry. That's another, you know, profitable opportunity, but they're not stopping uh, the fossil fuels uh, to the extent it needs to happen. I mean, they have cut back particularly because of the air pollution in cities like Beijing, where the air got so bad, it was just, you know, destroying people's lungs. And this is important because China is not only 20% of the world's population, but 40% of the industrial workers of the world who have a lot of social weight when it comes to making radical change because they can go on strike and stop everything until their demands are met. Meanwhile, China accounts for 30% of all global carbon emissions, which is more than the US and EU combined at this point. So what happens in China is key to solving the climate crisis and the other economic and war crises that come out of global capitalism. So uh, I'm just saying we need to find ways of being in practical solidarity with Chinese pro-democracy and working class and eco-socialist activists because like us, they're in the belly of one of the two biggest capitalist powers in the world. And so, you know, we've both got to deal with our own uh, ruling classes and, and social systems and, you know, support each other in transforming them. And, you know, last thing I'll comment on is I find it ironic, you know, after I, I did that review of the Real Path to Peace in Ukraine panel a couple of weeks ago, put on by Answer and Code Pink and so forth. Um, and, you know, they were saying the U.S. should negotiate with uh, presumably Russia. They weren't, they're kind of vague. They're just saying calling for negotiations. Well, on Thursday, Biden said he was ready to negotiate with Putin if he's ready to end the war. And Putin, through his spokesperson, uh, Peskov, said, no, we're not negotiating until the U.S. recognizes the Russian-occupied territories in Ukraine that Russia claims it has annexed. So, you know, I'm wondering, so what is uh, answering Cold Pink going to do now? You know, are they going to demonstrate that the Russian embassy is calling for negotiations? Unfortunately, I don't think so. Um, and, it, and another thing I'd note about that is Biden said that with Macron at his side, um, the French president. And Macron has, you know, continued to try to negotiate and talk to Putin, you know, throughout this war. Um, and Biden said when he, he made a statement with Macron right there that he would he would negotiate in consultation with the NATO countries. He didn't mention Ukraine, which uh, now, you know, he, he gaffs a lot. Maybe that was unintended. Uh, you know, he forgot. But um, I think it could also mean that, that NATO and, you know, including Biden and Macron are ready, you know, to sell out Ukraine in a land for peace deal to get the war over with, which is, you know, costly to the Western countries and disrupted the economy. And that would be unfortunate. It would be a inter-imperialist agreement on dividing spheres of influence, which is what imperialist countries do. Um, and it accepts an international order of inter-imperialist competition and rivalry <clears throat> that even if they have an agreement about Ukraine, it, it by its own logic, it can only lead to more wars and at some point nuclear war. So that's why we need a global eco-socialist revolution. We got to support people in every country fighting you know, the ruling classes for democracy and socialism. And that will put an end to the militaristic competition among capitalist states, as well as the endless growth, of fossil fuels and other uh, dangerous production that's imperiling our whole 
environment and our basically our existence. So those are my comments for this week. And uh, I look forward to your questions and comments. Susan Jane Hogarth, are you against arming Ukraine then? No, Ukraine has a right to defend itself from imperialist invaders. And where else are they going to get the arms but from the U.S. and the NATO countries? They have a right to self-defense. It's a national liberation struggle. We should support them against the Russian imperialists. Gregory Mallard. What's your opinion on having GPS leaders, along with local and state Green Party chairs, attending union meetings? Uh, yeah, we should. And whenever you know we can, whenever it's appropriate. Um, I've done it many, many times, not just in my own union, but with other unions. Um, we should build relationships with the union leaders, staff, and the rank and file. It just depends. Every union is different, different degrees of democracy. Uh, different levels of rank and file organization. But yeah, we should be uh, building those relationships because as the Rail Workers United said this week, um, you know, in response to getting screwed by the Democrats and Republicans, you know, we need a workers party. And uh, so they're a union that we should be, well, it's a reform caucus, it's a union, it's a labor organization, not a union with contracts with the rail companies, but it's you know, a rank and file caucus across the different rail unions. Um, you know, we should be, uh, you know, talking with those folks is just one example. And, uh, you know, every industry, you know, you can find people like that that we should be in touch with as well as the formal union process. And you will find sometimes you just won't get in the front door. And other times you'll find that the rank and file will overrule the leadership. I mean, I had a case of that in 2018 running for governor. I was the only gubernatorial candidate that asked the Buffalo Federation of Teachers for their endorsement. I had it in 2014, along with six other local unions, against the wishes of the State Union Federation, because they'd had it with Cuomo. And so I met with their political committee, which made a recommendation to their executive committee, which recommended to the membership meeting that the union be neutral on the election. So they weren't endorsing Cuomo, they weren't endorsing me, they weren't endorsing the Republican, they were just staying out of it. And the rank and file said, no, we want to endorse Howie. And they, they overruled the executive committee recommendation and I got the endorsement. So you build those relationships. And I, you know, I've worked with some of those teachers in Buffalo. Um, and, you know, we can, it's definitely something Green should do more of. Scout Trooper 164, what is your view and prediction for the Georgia runoff? Well, my view is, you know, I'm rooting for Warnock, obviously. Herschel Walker doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Uh, he's just not qualified to even understand what's going to come before him in the Senate. Um, prediction? Uh, I'm, you know, I haven't studied it closely, but I do get the sense from what news reports I've heard that you know, the Walker campaign is losing enthusiasm even from its own people. The lieutenant governor in Georgia said he went into the polling place and decided not to vote for the Republican or the Democrat. He walked in, left him a blank ballot and walked out, which is not a good signal for the Republicans. 
and Herschel Walker's, you know, been, uh, he doesn't have a firearms bill. He's not really out there campaigning. That's what I've heard from the news reports. All that is, uh, you know, probably good news for Warnock. Um, so I guess if I had to predict, you know, if I was forced to make a bet, I'd bet on Warnock. <clears throat> the email, what are your thoughts on the 15-year-old Warnock canvasser in Georgia who was shot? Uh, you know, that's terrible. I just saw the New York Times article on that. Uh, they're not saying the shooter had a motivation. He shot through his front door, which had windows, so probably saw who the kid was. And, uh, you know, it just tells me, you know, people are too quick on the trigger. Uh, we'll find out if it was, you know, a politically motivated or, or, you know, a sick person or what it was. But that's terrible. And, you know, when, when that kind of violence happens in the course of an election, it discourages people from participating. You know, um, so, you know, we'll have to wait to get a definite, uh, you know, uh, report on what motivated this. Now, the kid was shot in the leg. He, apparently, you know, it's not life threatening, but, you know, that's just terrible. And, you know, it's uh, it's that kind of violence that's, you know, under undermining our democracy and has been encouraged by a lot of those Republican right wingers, starting with Donald Trump. Um so we got a problem and, you know, we got to speak out against that kind of uh, incitement to violence. You know, Donald Trump should get his butt kicked running for president, whether he will or not. We'll see. The problem with the Republicans is they don't have uh, rank choice voting or proportional representation of the uh, votes for the delegates, for the presidential candidates and therefore their delegates in the convention. It's winner take all state by state. So. All the anti-Trump candidates split the vote amongst themselves and Trump, and this happened in 2016, he got through with, you know, rarely more than 30% of the vote in the states. And you know, that's another argument for proportional representation. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I just hope the kid is going to be all right and the, and the shooter, whatever his motive. The thing that shocked me, his bail was only like $5,600 or something. Um, geez, I, I know the bail they have around here in New York is for something like that would be much, much higher, which just raised the flag for me. So we'll, we'll have to wait for more, more reports, but, uh, it's just a sad thing and, and a terrible thing that happened. <clears throat> Scout Trooper 164, Howie, how do you feel that someone on the New York Times finally asked for the charges against Julian Assange to be dropped. Uh, I feel like it's about time. Uh, the New York Times used uh, WikiLeaks uh, documents that you know Julian Assange and WikiLeaks provided to them for a number of stories, you know, in you know 2010 and in that period, and they've been largely silent as the U.S. has gone after Julian Assange for publishing or making those documents available. So it was the New York Times editorial board in combination with four other global news outlets, Der Spiegel, uh, El Pais in Spain, I think it was Le Monde in uh, France and The Guardian in England. And so, you know, I was glad to see that statement. I hope they now campaign and not just let that be a one-off. 
because, you know, extraditing Assange to the U.S. is going to be a real strike against a free press and democracy. And it's, you know, they said the charges should be dropped. That's what I've been saying. That's what everybody should be saying. And that's what the Biden administration should do. I mean, it was Trump. Obama said we can't prosecute Assange because it'd be a danger to the free press. Of course, then Trump did it and Biden's continued it. So, you know, tell me again, those uh, liberals that said you got to vote for Biden to stop Trump. You know, well, this is one area where it didn't make any damn difference. So, you know, free Julian Assange. It's about time. Andrew Hager, Howie, what can we do to show our support to the railroad strikers? Well, at this point, we, we got to, you know, see what their lead is. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. The, the one thing they have said is we should be demanding that Biden modify that Obama executive order or issue a new one to extend seven days sick leave to the railroad workers who are now exempt from Obama's executive order. That's the immediate thing they're asking for. Uh, I don't think they'll go on strike. The consequences will be too great. So I think, you know, right now what we got to do is, you know, Send a message to the White House, you know, phone, email, telegram, however you want to do it, and say the railroad workers should get sick leave. Scout Trooper 164, what do you think of same-sex marriage finally getting through the Senate? I think it's good. And it really shows, you know, the politicians in the end have their you know, fingers to the wind, and when something's overwhelmingly popular, uh, they're going to go with it. And, you know, the amazing thing to me is that, and I've said this many times, when the Green Party in New York, we had a, a mayor and deputy mayor in New Paltz, and they started doing same-sex marriages in 2003 or four, and the Democratic Attorney General of the state got an injunction against that, and uh, the uh, mainstream LGBT Equality groups were saying, oh, we're going to spark a backlash. That was a period when Karl Rove, Bush's brain, was, you know, putting these uh, anti-gay ballot initiatives to mobilize the base for Bush. And instead of promoting a backlash, it sparked a movement and a, and a massive transformation of public opinion. I mean, you know, early on, you know, fucking, uh, excuse my language, um, Car no, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, Bush's vice president. I'm blanking on it. Dick Cheney. You know, he has a lesbian daughter, and he said, "Yeah, he's for marriage equality." And I helped. I think that helped a lot to move. You know, the more conservative people. But I think the bigger thing to move people is, you know, most people in their families or friends have, you know, gay, lesbian bisexual, transgender people, and they, they want to see those people, you know, have the same rights as the rest of us. Um, and so that, that, you know, public opinion on that flipped in less than a decade to the point where we got marriage equality passed in a lot of states and then approved by the Supreme Court. Um, so I think, you know, one of the lessons of that is don't hold back on your demands because you think they're not popular. If they're right, if they're the right thing to do, go ahead and do it. 
And most people want to do the right thing. And a lot of times on these issues, people are like in the back of their mind thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm with that, but I'm not going to go public on it because my friends, you know, my peers uh, won't approve. But once you get the sense that people, you know, do approve, then everybody comes out of the woodwork. And I think that's what happened in this case. I've seen that happen on so many issues. So, you know, don't hold back, you know, do what's right. And then, you know, try to persuade people to come to your point of view. And more often than not, you know, if we can do that, they will. John Wood, what do you think of nonpartisan offices in municipal elections? Often there's no left alternative to standard Dems running cities. Should cities revert to bicameralism without the filibuster? Um, well, I don't like nonpartisan offices. That comes out of the progressive era where middle-class elites wanted to get rid of the, uh, the machines that the Democrats and Republicans, depending on the city, ran. There was a lot of patronage and graft and corruption. Um, so they thought if they made it nonpartisan and kind of technocratic, uh, that it would clean up government. It would also prevent socialists from getting elected. A lot of them were getting elected in that period too. And that was another of the concerns of the elite progressives. Um, and the fact is in nonpartisan elections in many cities, everybody knows who the Democrat and Republican is. And if somebody's agreeing, they know that too. So it really doesn't remove the partisanship. It just means the partisan label is not on the ballot. Um, so I, I think I, I'm not for nonpartisan elections at any level. Um, and yeah, there's no left alternative to standard Dems running cities. You know, there's a vacuum there because the Republicans are not serious competitors for those offices in most cities. And the Greens can right away become the progressive alternative and win a lot of those seats. And we should do more of that. And by the same token, in the rural areas that are more Republican, we can do the same thing because the Democrats don't run serious candidates. Um, so then revert to bicameralism without the filibuster. I don't know if we've had much bicameralism at the city level. You know, that's two chambers. Um, maybe I'm not sure what you meant by that. You know, bicameralism without the filibuster, I think, you know, you definitely need. I think, you know, unicameral legislative bodies, certainly at the uh, city level, uh, we have it in Nebraska of all states at the state level. Um, and I don't know why we shouldn't have it at the federal level. I would just as soon see a proportionally elected House and the Senate be gotten rid of because it's disproportionate. And it was designed to slow down legislation, to be a conservative or a conserving institution in the way the Constitution was set up. <clears throat> and that makes it hard for popular movements that, that you know, are behind a, a reform to get it through because it, it takes, let's go through both of the houses. And uh, often the Senate is a bastion of conservatism because it gives two senators to what has been since slavery times, the mostly rural white conservative uh, parties or, or states. And so uh, what is the number I saw? It's like 16, Six, I think it's 16 senators from the smallest states, or maybe it's the 16 smallest Republicans from the smallest states, have as much voting power 
No, they had as many votes as the two Democrats elected from California. You know, it's just disproportionate. It's it's not one person, one vote. It's it's just a anti-majoritarian institution. So I'd be for unicameralism at the federal level and abolish the U.S. Senate. The problem there is to do that through an amendment, you need universal or, you know, what's the word? Una unanimous uh, consent from all the senators to even get it to the point where the states could vote on it. The only alternative to that is to have a, a convention for a new constitution, you know, called by a constitutional convention called by, I think it's two thirds or maybe three quarters of the states. It's hard to do, um, but it's something we should talk about because the Senate is illegitimate if you're talking about democracy. I see in the notes, John Wood said bicameralism existed in municipalities. Philadelphia had the largest bicameral legislature in the U.S. Okay, yeah, there. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, but I don't see why bicameralism is, solves any problems that we have right now. I think the problem we have now is one-party rule. In you know, most of the cities, it's Democrats. In a few conservative places, it's Republicans. But... Um, what we need is proportional representation. So all the points of view are there and there, you don't have the polarization between two parties, which at the national level right now, um, has people voting for the uh, re Democrats as a lesser evil because they're afraid of the Republicans, even in municipal elections, because people see the national news and they're progressive minded, they're scared of what the Republicans might do. And they aren't that aware of what's going on in their city. So they just vote for the Democrats I mean, we've had cases where I've been in races where I was me against the Democrat and I'd be knocking on doors and people say, well, I can't vote for you, even though I like what you're saying because I'm afraid of the Republican. I say, there is no Republican. And uh, a lot of people, even then, were kind of skeptical. Like, really? Are you trying to put one over on me? Uh, so that's that's a that's a problem in the basically the political consciousness that a lot of people, and they get it reinforced through their unions and, uh, you know, the Democratic Party, that uh, the Greens are going to elect Republicans. And they'll use that even in races where there are Republicans. It's, it's kind of crazy, but that's why you've got to have, you know, in a campaign, you've got to have the ability to reach the voters with your message and explain to them, you know, what the real deal is. Via email, what happens now that an appeals court has thrown out the special master in Trump's case? Well, Trump appeals to try to delay it even further to the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, that master's thing that was done at the district court is so, I don't know how to say it without being, you know, I don't know what a lawyer would say. I'd just call it illegal. The judge just made stuff up. Um, I don't even think the Supreme Court is going to, you know, uphold what, what that district court judge did. Um, but, you know, Trump, you know, we know what he does. He's going to try to string it out as long as he can. So I think that's the next step. And, uh, you know, he's hoping you get a Republican House, starts investigating Biden in the January 6th committee and, you know, creates a lot of smoke so people don't pay too much attention to what's going on with his documents case. 
Um, but I don't think it's going to stop it. It's just going to slow it down. I think the Justice Department has finally said that we're going to nail this guy because this is just beyond the pale. John Wood, urban planning and politics go hand in hand to shape the realities of the working class. Should we staff housing and community development boards and commissions as greens to sway policy? Yeah, I think so. We should be there where they are, you know, making, you know, like planning boards, making decisions on what uh, development projects get approved or not. I mean, I've always advocated that part of our municipal program should be that these uh, particularly planning boards should not just be, you know, boards where private developers come in and get their plans approved or not. They should really be, you know, proactive planning boards that decide with input from the community, uh, preferably community assemblies that talk about what they want in their own neighborhoods and then put out for bid. We want somebody to come in and, and do this project. And then the developers come in and bid on that project rather than coming in with their own plans, which are more about their making money than what's good for the community. But yeah, those are places where, you know, Greens uh, will get, you know, the you know kind of inside information if, that you won't get unless you have really good local reporting in your newspapers and television stations, which I don't know any community that still has that. So to find this stuff out, you got to go do your own reporting. Well, if we have Greens on these boards and commissions, we're getting the information that can then be brought back to the Greens and out to the community. And that will you know, also make our Greens more educated on municipal issues so that when they run for elected offices, uh, and some of these you know, commissions and boards are elected, but if they wanna run for the city council or mayor, they've already got a, you know, they're steeped in the, the local issues. So yeah, I think definitely that's an area where our local green uh, chapters should be uh, emphasizing. Mitchell Human, 15 year old student here. As a follow up to my questions from last week, do you believe that required classes and trades and such can help lower the negative feelings toward blue collar jobs? Well, I don't know if required uh, is the way to go, but maybe it is. You know, maybe as part of graduating, you should at least take a class or two in, in one of the trades and mix it up with the students that are more focused on, on you know, developing their trade. Um, but I definitely think that uh, people that want, want to go into the trades and in school should not be uh, seen as and promoted as uh, less than the people on academic paths. Um, and I think really we should have students doing both uh, academic training, college prep courses, as well as, you know, learning a trade or two, or, you know, at least taking some classes. Um, because, you know, when we denigrate those, you know, blue collar trades, uh, we end up with a, a labor shortage. Um, and you get a lot of young people that think uh, they're not worthy unless they, you know, got the academic training for a white collar desk job. And, you know, blue collar work, you know, anybody can sit on their butt and I've seen it, you know, they can make like they're, they're working hard when in fact they're on their phone or reading their email. 
they're, and it's hard to measure their productivity compared to what, you know, you're on a construction site, you, you know, you got to produce or you're not going to keep the job and you got to know what you're doing or you're not going to keep the job. So those are real jobs and they, you know, they make a real material difference. They're important. And uh, so we should not be denigrating, uh, you know, students that, that are in the trades. Um, but that's an interesting idea, you know, as a graduation requirement, having even those in college prep tracks, having to take a course or two in the trades, that would be an interesting idea. I hadn't considered that before, but I think it's worth consideration. Jason Kotzinger, thoughts on Hakeem Jeffries' new role? I'd say he's the perfect pick to maintain the status quo. He's a corporate Democrat. He used to be a corporate lawyer. Yeah, you, you've answered the question there, brother. Um, it's not a new role for Hakeem Jeffries. He's just got a higher rank in the House uh, Democratic Caucus structure, the highest rank now. And, uh, yeah, he'll be a good friend to corporate America and an enemy to those progressives in the Democratic Party. I mean, he had a uh, super PAC that he, you know, was very involved in that aimed at going after progressives like AOC and Rashid Tlaib and, you know, Summer Lee who just won. And I, I can't remember exactly who all, who he targeted, but uh, he is hostile to the progressives in the Democratic Party, let alone independent of the Democratic Party. For example, in New York, where they passed this draconian ballot access law, he hadn't said anything against that. He's not for democracy. He's just for Democrats. And the capitalists that backed them. <clears throat> Scout Trooper 164. Do you think Americans are drowning in loneliness? I'm asking because Crystal Hill, Crystal Hill, who's that? Is that uh, Crystal Ball from, from the Hill? I think that's maybe what you meant. Did a video on that where people don't really get to interact with others. Um, yeah, it's it's even if people don't feel lonely, they are isolated. Uh, we've laid out, you know, we we're talking about urban planning before. We've laid out our urban uh, environment for sprawl, where people live in, you know, tracked homes with their own driveways and. Uh, garages and they, you know, they drive to work, they drive to shop and then they drive home and don't have many places where they can congregate with other people in public space. So they're isolated, <clears throat> have limited interaction with other people except by electronic means and what the media is broadcasting at them. So that's, I think that's a problem. And for some people that means loneliness. For others, it means just uh, having a work perspective on what's going on in your community. Um, so I think we need, in terms of urban design, we need to, you know, emphasize public transit where people, you know, if you're going to the same transit stop every weekday morning to go to work, so are a lot of other people, you know, and, and that's an opportunity to get to know more people. Um, you know, having... Uh, shopping and work and residence and recreation within walking distance in compact communities is just going to provide, you know, natural situations where people will get to know each other and interact. 
and that's good for uh, the society and I think for people's, you know, health. Um, you know, they, I think there's studies that showed it. The more, you know, friends and acquaintances interaction you have with people, you generally the more uh, healthy you're going to be as opposed to people who are isolated. Um, so I don't know if it's loneliness, but certainly isolation. There's too much of that. Patrick Palladino, is there is the only thing we can do now a general strike? Seems nothing, nothing seems to work. Yeah, well, a general strike is easier said than done. You know, you've got to get everybody wanting to go out. So it's massive organizing. I think that's the culmination of a process rather than where we start. Um, when people are ready to go on a general strike, it's like the last straw. They've had it. And you study the general strikes we've had in this country and other countries. And I'm not talking about the, you know, sort of formalized general strikes some of the European unions do. France does it a lot. Italy does it a lot. Where all the unions agree to take a day off and march and then they go back to work the next day. And, you know, so the bosses take a day off and then go back to work. It just, it doesn't have that big an impact. Um, but a general strike that's disruptive. You look at where it's happened. You know, I'm thinking now the Teamsters in Minneapolis, um, you know, they were mistreated and violence perpetuated on them by the police and the city came out in support um, and went on strike with them. Uh, and that's the kind of thing you see in the, you know, the Seattle general strike, the San Francisco, Oakland general strike. Um, and, you know, anywhere you look around the world, that's kind of how it develops. So that means we've got to, you know, work in our own uh, jobs, industries to develop the labor movement and uh, if we're in a community or working through community organizations, you know, support the labor movement and uh, build a relationship with them. Um, but I think, you know, there, there are all kinds of tactics we should be using, you know, public education, uh, internal education within our movements. I mean, we should be reading things together and talking about them, and, you know, taking turns presenting a summary of the reading to start discussion which develops people as speakers. And, you know, we can give friendly criticism on how they can improve their presentation. Doing things like that in our locals develops us as organizers and activists. Um, so there's education, public and internal. Um, and then just, you know, demonstrations, protests, public forums on an issue to advance that issue, like single-payer health care. Um, but we have to realize that if that's all we do, the incumbents, generally the Democrats who are lobbying, most likely to maybe vote for that, can take us for granted if we aren't also running candidates that compete for those votes with progressive-minded people. So we got to employ all the tactics. And uh, I see a general strike as like we elect a we elect a progressive government, a green government, and it starts instituting reforms, and then the capitalists stop investing and uh, using the media to try to, you know, make scandals out of nothing for the people that were elected and providing obstruction to the process of, you know, carrying forward the reforms. Um, and when they disinvest from the economy to wreck it and blame the reformers, that's the time for a general strike. And not just a strike, but maybe to take over the means of production directly and tell the bosses, you know, we really don't need you. You don't do any work. And we can hire our own management to coordinate things. 
I think that's when a general strike scenario that can, you know, in the traditional wobbly sense of IWW, the International Industrial Workers of the World, um, in their sense of how a general strike would transform society, I think uh, it's not the first step. It's kind of the culminating step in a, in a transfer of power from capitalist elites to working people. Frankie Lee, Howie, what can we do to pressure big pharma to develop vaccines to diseases like Cuba has with cancer? How do we demand quality of life as a human right? We gotta just take over big pharma, get rid of these patents that uh, make these uh, vaccines and other drugs more expensive than they need to be. They should be provided to the public at cost as a public service, not a you know buy or die commodity. We've got a problem, you know, with these mRNA vaccines that have been effective with COVID, but not available around the world at a cost the poor country is going to afford because we haven't lifted the patents. Here's a proposal from South Africa and India that's been around for three, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, calling for them to lift the, uh, the patents for the pandemic so these uh, vaccines can get distributed to the poor countries. And, you know, while Biden gave some lip service to doing that, he didn't do it. He didn't back it up. The negotiations we know in the World Trade Organization, the U.S. basically threw a roadblock in there, as did other EU countries, you know, Germany and the U.K. in particular. So um, I don't I, I don't want to pressure Big Pharma. I want to take them over. I think that's the demand. You know, I mean, what pressure can they feel from us? You know, we can elect, and you know, realistically, Democrats who, who are going to rail against Big Pharma but in the end, you know, the progressive Democrats are weak. They're, they're the minority within the Democratic Party in, in the House. And so, you know, they can propose legislation to, you know, rein in big pharma, but uh, it's not going to pass. So, you know, what we really need is an independent political party like the Green Party that's about socializing big pharma and making these vaccines and other medicines available at cost as a public service, not a marketable commodity. Um, how do we demand quality of life as a human right? Um, well, we've got you know a lot of the elements of a good quality of life in the UN Declaration of Human Rights and other human rights declarations. And so, what we need to do is uh, get you know fight for bills that that begin to implement that, like you know Medicare for all, improved and expanded Medicare for all. And preferably, as I've argued, as a national health service, just not a national health insurance program. <coughs> in, in terms of housing, you know, we should radically expand public housing. It accounts for less than 1% of the units in this country. In many European countries, it's 20, even 30% in different uh, cities and regions. And what that does is make the private rental market compete with the public rental market. And it brings prices down closer to their cost rather than cost plus enormous speculative profits. <coughs> so I, I think we don't want to pressure big business. We want to basically take them over and, and have them run in the interests of the public.
John Wood, what's your take on a land value tax? How do we reliably and sustainably fund government and its various services with taxes? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I'm I'm for I am for the land value tax, not as a single tax as old Henry George advocated, but as uh, one of many taxes that are progressive. And you want a diversity of taxes because um, different taxes generate different revenues and different economic conditions. So you want that diversity so you sustainably fund government. So I think a land value tax, and that's where you basically tax the marketable value of the land, but not the improvements on it. And what that does is encourage uh, people who own land to improve it but not hold it in speculation waiting for the land value to go up. And when land value does go up, it's because of social investments that uh, around the land that's not developed or even land that is developed, but you haven't improved. You just kept it as it is, you know, with whatever, you know, buildings or businesses or, on, or homes are on top of it. And that's unearned, uh, it's an unearned income. It's, uh, John Stuart Mill called it, said something like, you know, you're making money while you sleep. And that's really not returning earnings to labor. It's just returning only earnings to a property owner. So the land value tax uh, has a lot of things to speak for it. But we should also have progressive income, wealth, estate, uh, financial transaction, and ecological taxes. The land value tax is an ecological tax because you're, you're taxing a scarce resource, land. You're not making more of it. Uh, so uh, you should have ecological taxes on the extraction of, you know, minerals and also on the uh, release of pollutants to disincentivize those things. So that would include a carbon tax. With I, I think to make it progressive, you have a full or partial uh, rebate on a progressive basis so that uh, the people most dependent who have the least uh, income to handle the additional uh, carbon tax on top of their fuel taxes, uh, on top of their fuel costs, um, you know, get some money back. And in fact, most models show that it'll actually be progressive redistribution to the bottom half or two thirds of the population because the largest amount of uh, burning of fossil fuel per capita is at the top of the income spectrum. So they would pay the most carbon taxes. So yeah, land value tax, yes. and. Uh, but we need a variety of taxes. It shouldn't be the single tax that some uh, Henry George fans advocate. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, what are your thoughts on people getting agitated over Disney's recent movie being LGBT friendly? Uh, well, you know, they need to get over it. They're in the minority now and they, they you know, they, they should begin to see LGBT people as people. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure what movie you're referring to, but, um, you know, this culture war stuff is really not about the actual cultural issue. It's about mobilizing right wing uh, people or people to the right wing. Uh, and it's about scapegoating these people for social problems that they didn't create. And so if people are feeling economically insecure or socially insecure because 
you know, their, their, their community in the case of, you know, racism, it used to be all white and now it's getting more mixed and they are comfortable about that. Um, that's what's going on here. It's really not about LGBT people so much as it's about mobilizing a right wing reaction uh, that in the end, the, the rich people funding it really don't care about that either too much. They mostly care about uh, getting right wingers in office who won't tax them, who won't regulate them. I mean, when you look at the people funding some of this right wing culture war stuff, you know, they're, they're not culture warriors themselves. They're sort of libertarian type capitalist tycoons who don't want taxes and don't want regulation. John Wood, should we implement many of the reforms you talk about? Ranked choice voting, proportional representation, public fund elections, mixed member districts. I think you mean multi-member districts. Citizens commissions for a redistricting at the municipal level. Yes, um, I, and I'm not for independent citizens commission for redistricting. I'm for proportional representation. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, you get rid of uh, single member district winner take all. Uh, you don't need to worry too much about how the district lines are drawn because it's proportional representation. And uh, so the, the independent redistricting thing, I think is kind of a side show to really go into multi-member ranked choice voting uh, so you get proportional representation at the municipal level. Uh, we just did that in three cities in uh, the last election, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, and Ojai, California. And uh, we can do it in a lot more. I, I haven't counted up how many cities do it, but I know Cambridge, Massachusetts does, Albany, uh, California does, uh, Palm Desert, California does, East, East Point, Michigan does, Arden, Maryland does. Um, so I don't know how many that was. It's getting toward 10. It should be 100. And then we, then we get it into state legislatures and the U.S. House of Representatives. That'll make a world of difference because then the Green Party will be, like it is in most other countries, an ongoing part of the political discussion between elections is rather during elections, as in, in addition to during elections. So I don't see all the other uh, items you had on your list, but to me, the, the proportional ranked choice voting is, is, the, is the real game changer. We can get ranked choice voting in single member districts that are still winner take all. And, you know, we'll be able to run without the spoiler effect, but we're still not going to win our proportional share of seats proportional to our real support in society. We saw that in Australia for years, the, the Greens have, they have single member district instant runoff voting or ranked choice voting for their house. For their Senate, it's proportional representation for multi-member regions. So the Greens were a 10% party. I think they were 12 or 13% in the last election. They get their proportional share in the Senate. But in the House, which has 150 members or maybe 151, they had one seat until this last election where they got four. But that's due to very good, strong organizing and favorable districts to them, where you know they beat the winner-take-all two-party logic. But that's hard to do compared to the Senate, where for years the Greens have had their proportional representation. So that's why we need to push for proportional ranked choice voting. 
and not settle for single member district ranked choice voting, which is still winner take all and bias toward the two major parties. Howie, where do you stand on the concept of ethical capitalism? Ah, man, I, I, I don't think there's such a thing. You know, um, capitalism is about maximizing profit in order to survive in the market. And to maximize profit, you uh, minimize your labor costs so the workers don't get their full share of the value they create. It's about where you can get away with it, externalizing costs, you know, like pollution, like social benefits. Um, so, you know, there's nothing ethical about that. It's basically you're trying to make money at the expense of other people in nature. So, you know, the whole concept of capitalism, which should not be equated with markets. A lot of people do that. The, the core of capitalism is the property relationship where the owner of capital gets to appropriate all the surplus value. And, you know, after paying the wages and the cost of materials, basically, the rest belongs to the owner, even though the value was created by the worker's labor. And that's institutionalized theft. That's not ethical. Okay, our hour is up. I don't see another question. I appreciate people being here and asking the questions. Uh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, next week, um, I'm going to see if I can get a, a guest to talk about the question of degrowth, uh, which is a hot issue in eco-socialism. I have somebody in mind who's uh, very good. He's got a slideshow ready to go. I just got to ask him if he can do it next Saturday. But I'm going to try to do that. And then the Saturday after, we'll have uh, Claire Cohen, and we'll focus on the healthcare crisis. And uh, you know, we'll just keep going and uh, you know talk about these issues and 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 get organized for what's coming ahead. So have a good week, everybody, and I'll see you next week.